In global dance, a shifting tide, not one or two, but power worldwide. Many centres interests collide, a balance sought where nations bide. What term describes such an order's stride? This was the first of our new weekly riddles put out on social media by E-International Relations on Friday the 11th of August. From now on, every week a new riddle will be posted on social media and the first person to get it correctly will receive a shout out here on the Thinking Global podcast. So find out the answer to this week's riddle at the end of this episode, alongside who was the first person to get it. And stay tuned to social media for next week's puzzle. Hello and welcome to the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara and as ever I am going to be your host and today I'm joined by my co-host Ismail Aden. Ismail is a politics and international relations student at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Hi Ismail, great to have you back. Hi, welcome back to Thinking Global. Today Ismail and I are going to be in conversation with two guests talking about the geopolitics of Central Asia. We're going to be speaking to Mr. Timur Umarov and Mr. Bruce Pannier. Bruce Pannier is a longtime journalist and correspondent covering Central Asia. He currently writes for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He also appears regularly on the Majlis podcast for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Prior to joining the Radio Free Europe in 1997, Bruce worked at the Open Media Research Institute in Prague, where he's coming to us live from today. And Mr. Timur Umarov is an expert on China and Central Asia. He is also a fellow at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center. And he is coming to us from Berlin. Okay, keep hold of your hats. This one's going to be great. Firstly, Mr. Bruce Pannier, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Hello, Kieran. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I've been looking forward to recording this one all week. <laughs> and Mr. Timur Umarov, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's start with something that will help ground the listener's understanding of the Central Asian region. So historically, how has Russia come to dominate the Central Asian region? And what has the significance of this region been for Russia since its regional rise? Mr. Amarov, Tamur, would you be able to take that one, please? Yes, sure. Russia's dominance was, of course, historic. If we go back hundreds of years ago, we will see that it was a great game between um, Russia and, at that time, um, Great Britain and uh, Central Asia was caught in the middle. And um, at that period of time, um, of course, Central Asia didn't exist as uh, a set of countries as it is right now, uh, but it all started um, back then. And of course, the uh, period of Soviet Union cemented Russia's role in the region. And um, just if we take a look at any sphere in Central Asia, whether it's economy, whether it's uh, logistics, um, whether it's trade or um, education or culture, anything would be Russia oriented um, or Russia dominated. And of course, after the collapse of Soviet Union, um, 
the five Central Asian countries appeared on the map. Uh, but the trends were were there. They did not disappear together with the Soviet Union. Um, and um, in my view, not only the objective reasons, but also the subjective reasons um, still keep the dominance of Russia in place. Um, what I mean is that uh, the people who became the um, you know, political elites of the independent Central Asian countries, they all made their career during the Soviet times and um, have been the part of the systems that were created by uh, Soviet Union or uh, Moscow. Um, and that is why this dominance still exists. And uh, when we talk about significance of the region, here we should say there are um, several factors. First of all, uh, resources. Uh, the, the resources were um, one of the main reasons why Russia started to uh, enlarge its empire to uh, the southern territories. And um, in Soviet times also, um, it was the agricultural resources, the cotton, the energy resources um, that Central Asia uh, is still very rich with. Um, and um, right now, um, I would say the significance of uh, Central Asia for Russia would be more of a geopolitical. Um, it's the only part of the world where Russia feels um, comfortable um, to be dominating. Um, and it kind of um, proves that Russia is a great power, like the US, like other uh, big influential countries. It has a set of um, countries around the world that are uh, leaning towards it, that are close to the leadership of Russia and supporting some of the initiatives that Russia pushes, um, like the Eurasian Economic Union or Collective Security Treaty Organization. Our second question goes to Panya. Of the states in Euroasia, is there a possibility that these republics will abandon close relations with Russia over the Ukraine conflict? Well, obviously, close relations is, is kind of a relative term here. One can't imagine a near or midterm future where Central Asia is able in any way to decouple itself from Russia. Russia has been there uh, as part of Central Asia for, you know, in, in some cases, more than 200 years in some areas. Um, most of the infrastructure, the, the communications networks when the Soviet Union finally collapsed all went toward Russia. Um, so. Um, there's so many ties that keep these countries energy ties in the case of Kazakhstan, where the, the grid goes back and forth between southern Siberia and northern Kazakhstan. Uh, you know, the fact that countries like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, for example, are dependent upon Russian oil. Um, and Uzbekistan right now is, is also importing not only Russian oil, but Russian gas. Uh, you know, there's, there's just so many connections that keep them together that one can't imagine Central Asia being separated from Russia anytime soon. Now, obviously, a lot depends on the outcome of this war in Ukraine as to how strong uh, or how much of a senior partner, I'll say, um, Russia is in its relationship with Central Asia. I think that could probably change uh, if Russia is defeated and finally has to withdraw its forces from Ukraine. Uh, its status in the international community would have taken a blow. 
Um, and, and it might be that the Central Asian leaders, although we see signs of this already, uh, will start to feel themselves more emboldened and more strengthened uh, when they're dealing with Russia and, and not have to listen, uh, but actually make their own uh, demands about how the relationship should be working, or at least more demands about how their relationship with Russia should work. Um, but like I said, uh, it, 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 even in the worst case scenario, you can't detach from Russia if you're in Central Asia. It's, you know, it is the big northern neighbor. Um, and if you look at Central Asia's other neighbors, uh, you know, China, they, they enjoy the finances from China, but they are also certainly among the people. They're very uh, concerned about Chinese future intentions. Uh, there have been claims by some Chinese officials that parts of Central Asia were once part of uh, Chinese empires. Um, so, and then Afghanistan uh, is still kind of chaotic. Iran uh, is, you know, historic ties to Iran, but of course there's the religious difference um, yeah, between them too. So Russia is, is a partner, um, the devil that they know, I suppose, you could put it that way. Uh, but again, there's so many things that bind them together that you can't imagine them being separate, existing separate uh, anytime soon. Wonderful. Uh, next question, third question actually, to Umarov. Earlier in 2023, China and the leaders of the five Central Asian republics met in Beijing and signed the Xing Declaration. Can this be interpreted as China playing a double game with Russia? I would say that it is a very popular narrative right now. And actually it started one year and a half uh, earlier with the launch of Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine um, in February 2022, that right now when, when Russia has become so weak and um, so isolated, China would replace it somehow in, in Central Asia. And there is this thinking that um, Russia has left this vacuum in, in Central Asia that would definitely be filled by Beijing. And many uh, people were looking at the summit in Xi'an um, in, in May um, this year as, a, um, as an evidence, as a proof that um, their um, thinking about the future of geopolitics in Central Asia and China's role um, is, is definitely growing. Um, here, I should say that um, this is a oversimplified view on the region. Um, and of course, um, I'm not saying that China's um, influence in Central Asia is not growing. It's growing. And this has been the trend that we've been observing even before the war and even before the annexation of Crimea by Russia, when uh, Russia was, uh, you know, for the first time, started to become um, isolated. Um, but this trend has almost nothing to do with Russia, um, with, with Russia's positions in the region. What I mean is that Central Asia is not a, um, you know, territory where, where you have limited space for the presence of different countries. And um, it's it doesn't work like, you know, physics, uh, when when one country uh, becomes less visible, the other becomes more visible. It's, it's not as easy as that. Um, and most importantly, every country's presence is unique. Uh, 
And um, as me and Bruce already said, um, Russia's presence is, um, is, is very unique. And um, I would say there is uh, no other place in the world where Russia feels um, so comfortable and where um, so much is connected with Russia. Um, so um, um, it, it, it doesn't work like that. Um, also, um, I wanted to add um, that China's uh, growing influence um, also depends on um, Russia's heritage in uh, Central Asia, the heritage of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, the um, China's foreign policy was dealing with uh, Central Asia for um, many years as a part of the Soviet Union. And at the moment, uh, the very um, foundation of the uh, diplomatic instruments that China possesses, of the research organizations that China has, are all based um, on, the, on, on, on the thinking that um, Central Asia is a part of this big post-Soviet space. And of course, in this post-Soviet space, uh, the majority of attention would be paid to Russia. And um, Central Asia is uh, something on the outskirts of, of this space. And that is why um, you see that even when we talk about the bilateral ties between China and any Central Asian country, you would see um, the shadows of Russia's presence there. For example, even during this Xi'an summit, um, uh, it was obvious that um, Chinese part didn't have enough specialists, enough translators, so that they would be speaking with Central Asian representatives in their national languages. They were using Russian as a, um, you know, lingua franca that everyone uh, could understood. Um, and um, that already is a, a very good evidence that every country has its own specific, unique presence in Central Asia. And the space is not limited. Um, it can be both at the same time, Russia and China growing or uh, declining. So um, yeah, my, my main idea is that uh, it's not physics. It's, it's much more nuanced. Hmm. I think what's incredibly salient is that both of you explore the uniqueness of Russia's presence in the region. And this point about space and how it defines the Central Asian region in relation to the powers around it, I think is going to become much more important as time goes on. Anyway, so China and Russia aside, Iran, the UAE and Turkey have sought a foothold in the region, both historically and contemporaneously. Mr. Panier, Bruce, can you speak a little about the potential for regional power rivalries leading to conflict? Or if this is simply too foolish a question to even consider? <laughs> this is an interesting question. I mean, th there already is an example of regional rivalry uh, that's been played out in Central Asia and Tajikistan, where Saudi Arabia, well, let me back up here a little bit. Iran and Tajikistan share many affinities, uh, linguistic, historic, right? Their, their languages are mutually intelligible. Um, so, 
uh, Iran always thought since the independence in 1991 that, that this was their natural partner in the newly independent states in, in Central Asia. And to some extent that that is true. I mean, it's logical that that would be the way it is. And they did, they've had off and on relations, but about, oh, not even 10 years ago, Saudi Arabia decided that they were going to start investing money in Tajikistan and uh, to and to the at the expense of Iran's influence in Tajikistan. It, it just so happened that there was a co kind of a coincidence that helped Saudi Arabia out where um, Iran was close to some people that were in the in an opposition party in Tajikistan uh, and invited them to come to Iran and, and regularly met with these kind of people. And um, so the so the Iranians are, um, showed that they, they wanted to play with, you know, play all sides in Tajikistan. Now, Saudi Saudi money went toward government projects um, that they wanted. And, and all of a sudden, the attitude, the relationship between Tajikistan and Iran started to get much worse. The, the Tajik government accused the Iranians of uh, sponsoring assassination attempts during the 1992-1997 Tajik civil war. Uh, it started complaining about them meeting, you know, Iranian officials hosting these people from Tajik opposition groups. Um, so, you know, you saw that they, that was an example of how outside powers can kind of play a game inside one of the Central Asian countries. Um, now, another example of that would be Turkey and the fact that Turkey has, you, right, you mentioned that they're one of the countries that's trying to get influence in the region or their influence is increasing anyway. Um, they wanted to form and did form this group called the Organization of Turkic States. Now that, the four Turkic states, nominally in Central Asia, are Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. So Tajikistan is still over in the Persian corner, right? They're with the Persian group. Um, so this already kind of created a division, um, which everyone knew was there, right? But, uh, but it wasn't pronounced or anything. There wasn't any, any group that was formed along these lines um, until this organization of Turkic states was formed. And, and Turkey has given either, has either sold drones to these Turkey countries or given them technology so they could build their own or they're co-producing them at the same time. Now, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have fought two very brief wars in April of 2021 and then again September 2022. In the last one, um, Kyrgyzstan at the very end of it used its Turkish drones uh, and during the border clashes. Now, now Tajikistan, um, has Russian military bases on its territory and has Russian drones, but apparently, as we've seen even in Ukraine, Russia doesn't even use its Russian drones. Uh, so um, the Iranians opened up a drone-producing factory in Tajikistan. So this is now we have Turkey kind of not overtly and not openly saying that they're siding with Kyrgyzstan, but helping the Kyrgyz military, and we have Iran helping the Tajik military in a conflict, you know, which really to feel a conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. So this is an example of, of how things can kind of go wrong um, and create divisions within Central Asia. Now, clearly a lot of countries at the moment see an opportunity to, to increase their presence in Central Asia, their influence or, or whatever they want, trade, something. So, uh, you know, you, you named the United Arab Emirates, they're one, uh, they are also supplying weapons uh, and in, and investing in a lot of these countries in Central Asia, um, you know, they want to have see uh, connectivity expand out of Central Asia down into the Middle East. Uh, to, so, uh, with the goal of getting to China, of course. But Central Asia has, as Timur mentioned, significant resources itself uh, that are of interest to to the governments in the in the Arab world. So, um, 
you know, there, there is a, a kind of an opening since Russia is preoccupied with Ukraine. There's an opening for uh, people. You know, Russia's Russia's attention is distracted. Uh, you know, if you need a trade partner for this or this other thing that Russia historically, traditionally has provided for you, then let's talk. We can maybe cut some kind of a deal. Uh, maybe let's reorient the trade route from which has generally gone through Russia. More recently, there has been connections with China, but the southern and and southwestern routes have been uh, complicated, and they haven't really done much. So that's that's changing. Uh, they're trying to get uh, more. Uh, connectivity again uh, with, with the Central Asian region. And of course, along with that comes, um, you know, more influence and, and their own interests. Now, how those interests will clash with other people who are doing the same things uh, there, we'll still have to wait and see. Uh, and I guess I'll, you know, I'll leave it at that for now. Don't forget to listen to the very end of this episode where you'll be able to find out the answer to that riddle alongside who the first person that correctly guessed it was on social media for their shout out. Also, I'd like to take this time to ask you to like, share, subscribe and follow. If you're listening on fruit-related software, like Apple Podcasts, <laughs> click on that little follow button. And if you're listening on non-fruit-related software, like Amazon or Spotify, click on that little subscribe or follow button. This means that you'll be able to get all the content delivered straight to you the moment that the Thinking Global podcast episodes go live on Monday mornings. You don't have to go searching for us. It'll just pop straight up and you'll be able to enjoy all the content we have to offer. Alongside that, find us on social media using e-international relations. You'll be able to find that on X, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. And there you'll also be able to find the weekly riddles. Alongside this, please, please send us some letters if you want to tell us what you thought about a particular episode, an interview, or even if you want to tell us what you're reading, writing, publishing or thinking about. We'd love to hear your letters and thoughts, and you can send them to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. And from next episode, we'll be sharing them with you, the listeners, in the intermission. So please, please, please write in. Our fifth question goes to both of you, but we start with Umarov, then we come to Pania. Lately, there has been political unrest in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, with the Russia-led Collective Security Treaty Organization intervening in Kazakhstan at the request of President Tokayev only a few weeks before the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. With such a regional wave of civic society and mass protests, Will this be the onset of a democratization wave similar to that of the Arab Spring? Yes, it is true that um, lately the uh, political crisis um, or unrest has been visible in all um, five Central Asian countries, I would say, um, not only in Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, but also um, in, in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan was always very energetic um, when it comes to um, domestic politics and even Turkmenistan um, after uh, the, um, you know, 
comparatively end of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, um, we also saw several um, examples of uh, people being unhappy with the you know economic situation and trying to protest against it. So. Um, I would say this is the trend that uh, we've been observing for the last several years. Um, and um, statistically, we can prove um, this trend um, as, uh, for example, if you go to the website of the Octus Society, they have a great protest tracker. And there um, you would see that the number of protests are on the rise um, in in Central Asia. And um, I would say that the this is the um, evidence of um, the changes of the demographic and technological change in the region. Um, these are two major trends that um, that you know cannot be influenced by um, the governments. We have the younger generation being more and more politically active, and what makes them different from their parents or from their grandparents is that um, they have access to technology which makes them con connected to each other and which which makes any attempt of um, protest unrest um, easy to organize um, and to uh, you know make yourself hurt um, so yeah because of that um, we have a growing number of unrests um, however, no one really knows where it's going to lead us. Um, um, you see, um, I don't think that the situation um, in Central Asia at the moment resembles of, uh, a situation in the Arab world um, when the Arab Spring happened um, um, in none of the Central Asian countries, maybe with the exception of Kyrgyzstan, um, but still, uh, in none of the Central Asian countries, um, there is no um, in-house um, democratic organizations or groups of people who are united or somehow, um, in, you know, organized in any groups um, that can lead this movement. Um, it, um, you know, uh, I, I mostly think when, it, when I think about the, uh, you know, potential radical scenario of the unrest, I am uh, thinking mostly about uh, the Belarus of uh, 2020. Uh, where you also had the authoritarian regime um, with the leader that has been in power forever. Um, and uh, when the moment uh, came and uh, people started to protest en masse in millions of people, um, the regime was able to cope with this crisis and was able to um, keep um, itself stable. Um, and of course, it was not without the help of Russia. Um, and um, in Central Asia, we also have a great example of this case um, in Kazakhstan uh, in January 2022. Um, it was not only the popular un unrest, but also an attempt among the uh, political elites to uh, shift the political system in their favor, uh, but still with the involvement of Russia, the uh, 
political regime in Kazakhstan stayed and was able to keep its power in its own hands. Um, so I think as long as Central Asian countries have trustworthy and close ties with Moscow, um, they have um, this help um, from Russia as a plan B. Um, but plan A would definitely be um, their own abilities to preserve uh, stability in their societies, which uh, for now, I would say they are successfully doing. And then, Mr. Panya, what are your thoughts? Um, well, obviously, I mean, Timur uh, summarized everything extremely well there. Um, you know, the, what I would add to that, uh, first, China would intervene uh, physically in any conflict in Central Asia, but they've certainly helped the governments to the greatest extent they can to keep keep them in power because they already know these people in Central Asia and they want to keep dealing with them and they put a lot of money in. So you can't imagine that China certainly wouldn't just sit by and watch as one of these governments went down. They would behind the scenes they would do everything they could to try to prop it up. So that kind of works against uh, a democratization, a wave of democratization in Central Asia. I mean, these are the two things. This is one you know Timur was talking about China and Russia. That the, there's one thing that China and Russia agree on, of many things they agree on, is that they don't want an Islamic government or a democratic government in Central Asia, uh, in any of the countries. Um, so this is where their interests absolutely coincide with that. So that, that's pretty tough if you're a, a, a democratic opposition in Central Asia. You're up against some um, you know, formidable uh, backers for the, the local regimes. Um, and, and in terms of, it looked, you know, 2022 did see a lot of up, upheaval. But the, all the... The first conflict, the one in Kazakhstan, was probably the closest to, I don't know if you can call it democratization, uh, but it was grassroots. It was resistance to a system that had been in place that they, people hoped was going to change and seemed absolutely, you know, to be a monolith, fossilized, uh, that wasn't willing to change. And, uh, you know, it, it, that is a lesson that small, it was the first protests were over a rise in fuel prices. Uh, but it quickly uh, developed into this much larger protest against we, we want more say in government. We want to see some changes, right? And I think that's the biggest fear that, that uh, all the Central Asian governments should have is that they don't change. In that respect, it kind of does look like the Arab governments during the time of the Arab Spring. We have these long-term regimes that have been in, uh, and, and the younger people especially get frustrated when they don't see the changes. But the, the, the Kazakhstan, like I said, was was kind of a grassroots protest that started and and evolved into something much more complicated where there was obviously a coup attempt from within the in government now the the situation in tajikistan and in uzbekistan that was a reaction of regional forces to government decisions from the central government um you know the in tajikistan and gornobarakshan uh it was the people feeling that they're very distinct uh from the rest of tajikistan uh, it's a remotely inhabited remote area um and they did not like the leadership that the center was appointing for them and they wanted and they did not like crackdowns against the local population that landed a bunch of people in in jail and and they protested they were out to protest they just wanted um you know to, not to be left alone but certainly they just wanted to kind of have a have more say in their own local politics without such a heavy hand from the government being in there now in, in uzbekistan also um it was the decision to change the amendment or to amend the constitution and remove a couple of special privileges that were in this region, Qatar called Pakistan. Um, the nominal uh, right to sovereignty, the nominal right to uh, hold a referendum and secede, secede from Uzbekistan if they wish. 
So it, it really didn't have anything to do with democratization. Um, and so you have, you know, it's you can't link these things between the countries. Um, so you can't imagine a popular way um, springing up off something like this. Now that said, of course, as as many people have noted, uh, you know, an authoritarian regime uh, uh, is only stable until it's not right um so if one falls apart uh then of course there i suppose there could be a risk of spillover but like i said the reasons for the protests last year were different so it's not a wave of de democracy and opposition people saying okay we're done and we and we want you know we want something better from the government so in, in kazakhstan's case you could possibly make that argument but the other two cases you really can't and i and i think that's part of the problem and the fact that even when people are unhappy with the governments, they're unhappy for their own unique reasons with the government. So again, we don't have a situation where people have th common threads from country to country uh, of what they want it to be changed in their system. Obviously, everyone would like to live better, but how, what is what is your idea of better living standards, and what is your idea of more in the government? Um, there's not not very many connections there. So uh, I don't see a wave of democratization and an Arab Spring situation evolving anytime soon in Central Asia. But that said, if one of the major countries in Central Asia, and by that I mean Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, if one of them suffered serious socioeconomic crises and there was a lot of protests, then it could start to send ripples out into the neighboring countries, into the other ones. But that's uh, what would happen if those governments went out. Um, you know, we've seen in Kyrgyzstan, they've changed governments three different times from revolution. Um, the first time they did it, they ended up with the worst government. Uh, this last time that they did it, um, the jury's still out, you know, on, on whether they got a better system than the one that they, they replaced, was replaced. So, um, but I don't see a, an Arab Spring, so to speak, in, in Central Asia. Thank you, thank you. It's a really interesting insight from both of you, and I do think it's important to distinguish between this regional wave of civic society action and the Arab Spring, which might be being conflated a little bit too much, as you both argue. Okay, so we have one final question that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. And that is, what is it to think globally for you? Mr. Amarov, would you be able to take this one first? Thank you. I would say for me, think globally would mean thinking without prejudice, thinking without stereotypes trying to be empathetic like while thinking globally about other countries origins um especially when we talk about international relations it's very important to try to put yourself in other people's shoes and looking at things from their perspectives that's a great answer and bruce what is thinking globally for you you get the last word on this Oh, Timur gave such a good answer there. Uh, but, but, you know, just I'm going to follow pretty much in the, in the same vein that, um, you know, especially in these the age where we have the Internet and uh, information moves around so, uh, so quickly, it would be good if people were, felt themselves more connected to other parts of the world um, that they were interested in. And, and, and really just like any part of the world, too, to take some of the good lessons that are out there and see what some of the failures that have happened so that they don't make that mistake in their own countries. And, and, you know, also the connection part is just uh, you, you find if you look at the roots of really prejudiced people who are all over in different parts of the world um, where I've been the minority a lot of times, too. And most people that when they're prejudiced against somebody, they, they probably have never met that somebody from that group or, or only had like a very brief and brief encounters with America, as an example, since I'm an American. 
um, you know, a lot of the bigotry that was aimed toward African-Americans was by people who had ne never really run into an African-American. They'd never been in a class with them, classroom with them, uh, spoken with them, anything. You know, these this is the great fertile soil for hatred. Uh, you know, I grew up, again, in the United States, and we, we were afraid of the communists. You know, we were told these were... This was, this was the enemy, the Soviet Union. They were out to get us. Then I went to the Soviet Union in 1988 and, um, and found out that, you know, there was, you know, I got along great with people. Uh, I worked in Central Asia. Uh, people told me I'm, a, I'm Catholic and people told me I was crazy going there. I was going to live in Muslim villages. They said that, you know, it was dangerous. It wasn't dangerous at all. It, in fact, it was a wonderful experience. So I think, you know, that the, the ability to connect with people around the world can really help lower this, this prejudice and racism and things like that, because most of the racism and prejudice that exists in the world is because people are, will accept one side of the argument and, and never try to cross the line. Some really, really interesting answers there, I have to say. However, that's all we have time for. So thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast, guys. Mr. Tamuramarov, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Mr. Bruce Pannier, thank you ever so much for joining us. It has just been lovely. Thank you. It's a pleasure being on the program. Okay, that was cool. <laughs> Ismail, what do you think, mate? What are your immediate thoughts? I think this has been a very important session because when we talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, most people, when they try to analyze the implications of this war, they tend to focus on the security threat this war poses on Europe and the acute food crisis it causes in Africa. Less attention has been directed to the dynamics in Central Asia. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that that notion. That since the invasion of Ukraine, there tends to have been a lot of focus on the broader geopolitics, the great power rivalries, as some would call it. But I think that not enough attention has necessarily been paid to the Central Asian region and the dynamics of that region as a whole. So yeah, really, really fascinating, really, really interesting. Don't forget that at Thinking Global, we are part of e-international relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't already been over to e-international relations, you can go and find us at e-ir.info. And there you'll just be able to find tons of content, free articles, free books, reviews, interviews, features, the lot the absolute works relating to all you can think about concerning IR and international politics broadly. I'd like to take this time to thank the podcast team at International Relations. That is Edward Curry, Tusharika Decker, Nigel Huckle, Abigail Glynn, Daniel McDade and Eduardo Pieroni. And also a massive thanks to Ismail Aden for co-hosting this one with me. Thanks again, bro. That was a fantastic interview. I'd also like to thank Material Music for providing the music and you, the listener, for listening. So before we finish and give you the answer to that riddle, I'd like to remind you that we'd love to hear your letters. So please send us your letters if you just want to tell us about anything you're thinking about, reading, writing, publishing, or any thoughts you've had particularly about the episodes or the interviews we've done. That's to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. And from next episode, as I say, We'll be sharing them out. So, it is riddle time. The riddle was, in global dance, a shifting tide, not one or two, but power worldwide. Many centres' interests collide, a balance sought where nations bide. What term describes such an order's stride? 
And the answer was multipolarity. And so I'd like to give a massive, massive shout out and congratulations to Saeed Tajmal Hussein Nakvi, PMS, at Saeed TJ Nakvi. Well done, ma'am. Fantastic work. <laughs> you got it within about two minutes. Well done. So keep your eyes peeled for the next riddle, which will come up on social media at some point this week. And who knows, you might get a shout out. <laughs> so I guess there's only one last thing to say. I've been Kieran Amira. I have been Ismail Aden. And together we've been Thinking, Thinking Global. Global.